You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Our sermon text today is Genesis 2, 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. We've heard God's word. Let's, let's pray together and ask the Holy Spirit to open our eyes. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you that you have spoken to us. You've spoken definitively in Jesus and I pray now that you would open up your scriptures that we might see him uh, more clearly and with uh, and as we see him we would trust in him uh, for every blessing uh, and every hope that we could possibly have especially as we hope in the life to come the eternal life that you've held out for us so we ask this in his name amen When we would go to visit my grandparents, they would often, uh, we'd go for about a week uh, for vacation, and my grandmother liked to put out these puzzles, and they were usually the kind, not the kind that I liked, which was like, you know, 10 different pieces, you know, and, you know, four feet by three feet, and you can just easily just put it together in about five seconds. She liked to have puzzles that we would put together over several days and work on them together, and like thousands of pieces that you couldn't tell the difference between one or the other. And I just kind of didn't have much patience for it because, well, I just, just, yeah, I, I, I couldn't envision what it could possibly be. So for, I always wanted to go immediately to the, to the puzzle box and see what are we working on here? And so often when we come to the Bible, the Bible feels like a bunch of disparate, different stories uh, that you just don't know how they all fit together. And here we are in the book of Genesis, and fortunately you can easily figure out, okay, this is how this whole thing starts. But what I'd like to do this morning is build a little bit on what Pastor Brent said last week and look at the big picture of the Bible because what Genesis is doing is providing us everything we need. It's laying the foundation for actually understanding the whole Bible. And what I'd like to do this morning is talk about three things. I'd like to talk about what the whole Bible is about. One word or phrase. Then I'm gonna talk about covenants in the Bible. Because covenants, you cannot, if you do not understand covenants, you will actually misunderstand a lot of the Bible. And then finally, maybe not surprisingly, we'll talk about Jesus. So we're going to talk about what the whole Bible is about, the one theme, then we'll talk about covenants, then we'll talk about Christ. That's the game plan for this morning. And hopefully this will provide us with sort of our puzzle box picture, the the box top, so that we know what we're dealing with as we go through the Bible. So the one theme that the Bible is about, if you could summarize the Bible in one word or one phrase, what would it be? 
What would you, what would you throw out there? Maybe, maybe love. You know, God is a loving God. Or, or maybe God. The Bible could be summarized with, by God or, or Jesus. Um, maybe you could summarize it by saying it's a story or it's about history. All these things are really good options. But the word that I think that the Bible is all about, that you could summarize with, and you can then use this as trivia for all of your parties that you go to, is the word kingdom. The Bible is about the kingdom. And if we want to turn it into a phrase, it's about the kingdom of God. That is what the Bible is about. In, in every, any passage you ever come to, the kingdom of God is what you're going to find. Now, you might be somewhat skeptical, but I'd like to walk through different portions of the Bible and try to show that the kingdom of God is the main thing that the Bible is about. And I'd like to start with sort of the um, clearer passages and work towards less clear passages. So let's start with just this generic observation. The people of Israel, which takes up a huge chunk of the Bible is a kingdom. Israel is a kingdom. In fact, interestingly enough, listen to how the book of Ruth starts. In those days, Israel had no king and everyone did as he saw fit. Actually, that's the end of Judges, sorry, not Ruth. But Ruth also actually starts somewhat similarly. And then you get into the, probably one of the most significant figures of the Old Testament, David. And David is known as a king, and he makes everything great. He's seen as the golden age, the golden ruler of Israel. And his son, Solomon, kind of brings that to a conclusion and makes the high point when he builds the temple. And he's seen as this great wise king that all the peoples of the earth come to listen to. So, so we clearly have God has set up at least some sort of kingdom with Israel. Now, you you might say, well, that's just one bit of the Bible, maybe a big chunk, but it's not the whole thing. Well, if you jump to Daniel 7, what's interesting is in Daniel, Israel has actually, as a kingdom, been more or less demolished. They've been overtaken by foreign powers. And now Daniel is not even living in his home country. He's a foreigner who's now serving in a foreign government, in a foreign kingdom. And he has this vision in Daniel chapter 7. He sees all these great big beasts in his vision. But then he sees, if you look at verses 13 and 14, he says, In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, who happens to be sitting on a throne. He was given authority. The Son of Man was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So Daniel, when he's hoping for something better, has this vision of an unending kingdom. Okay? But here's the thing, when you get to the end of the Old Testament, Israel, at best, is just a small, little uh, government that's ruled still by foreign powers. 
So you, when you finish reading the last words of the Old Testament, you're kind of like, well, what happened to Daniel's vision? What happened to all the, the golden age of David and Solomon? Like, if things are at a really low point when you get to the end of the Old Testament. So you definitely have this feeling that the story has to keep going. But you wait for a long time if you're God's people. The Hebrew Old Testament, one commentator says, concludes with unfulfilled expectations concerning the promised return from exile, causing us to wait for the arrival of the true king and the kingdom of God in the New Testament. So what does the New Testament do with this concept, this, this theme of the kingdom? Is it there? And in fact, when you open your New Testament, that is for sure what you find. Not just Jesus, but actually all the people around Jesus are, are thinking about the kingdom. There are groups of uh, Jewish people, Jesus' own people, who are actually involved in riots to overthrow the Romans. They're, they're known as zealots. And there's actually quite a bit of rioting that goes on right around the time of Jesus trying to overthrow this oppressive government, this oppressive other kingdom. And then when you get to Jesus' actual teaching, here are the first words that Jesus says in the Gospel of Mark. The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. And it's not just one time. In all the Gospels, in Matthew, Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven 31 times. In Mark, the kingdom of God 15 times. In the Gospel of Luke, 32 times. In John's gospel, John doesn't talk about the kingdom a ton, but listen to what Jesus says to Nicodemus, a, a leader of the religious people, a religious leader, sorry, of the people, in John 3.3. 3. Jesus says to Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. First things out of his mouth to Nicodemus. You want to be a part of the kingdom of God? You've got to be born again. Move on to the book of Acts. Again, Jesus is resurrected. He's about to depart earth and go to heaven. And he says this, After his suffering, he showed himself to the disciples and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke to them about the kingdom of God. That's Acts chapter 1 verse 3. Then we meet this interesting guy, Paul, religious zealot, persecutor of the newly established Christian church. And guess what Paul's talking about at the end of Acts, the very last chapter of Acts. Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God in Acts chapter 1. Paul, in Acts 28, verses 30 and 31, for two whole years, Paul stayed in Rome, the oppressive kingdom of the Jewish people. He stayed in Rome in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. Boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God. So the book of Acts 
also is keenly aware that the kingdom of God is the teaching of Christ and the teaching of Paul. So when New Testament writers actually want to summarize the teachings of different people, whether it's Jesus or the apostles, they summarize it with the phrase, the kingdom of God. That, that is the summary of the totality of their teaching. Now, what about here in Genesis? Genesis chapter 1 and ch- through chapter 3. You know, you'd kind of expect kingdom stuff somehow. And I think that Pastor Josh and Pastor Brent have already pointed some of these things out, so I just am going to review them very quickly. And this is far from exhaustive. Genesis chapter 1, Pastor Josh pointed out to us that days 1 through 3 are days where God forms space. You could think of them as different realms or different kingdoms. And days 4 through 6 correspond to days 1 through 3. Remember day 1, God creates light. Day 3, sun, moon, and stars. And what does God tell the sun, moon, and stars to do? What's their appointed task? To govern. To govern the light and the the light and the, the day and the night. On day Sorry, my, you can see why I like the small puzzles with like four or five pieces because math isn't my strong suit. Uh, on day three, he creates land, vegetation. Day six, more or less the pinnacle of the creation week, he creates humans. And what does he say about the humans? He hands over dominion. And the humans are made in the image of God. And Pastor Bren pointed out last week that in the ancient world, kings used to actually place their images throughout their kingdoms. And they would also place it on their um, currency, on their coins, so that you know whose realm you're in. And interestingly enough, the word for rest on day seven, which we haven't gotten to yet, has to do with the things that kings do. So in the ancient world, kings created their realms, they created their boundaries, which is what God is here doing. They provide safety and they provided order, protection from chaos, from the natural world or from enemies. And so what you need for a kingdom is you need a realm, a defined realm. You need a people that inhabits that realm, right? And then you need someone over top of it. I mean, if you have a prince who has no subjects, you don't have a kingdom. Or if you have a bunch of people but no ruler, no kingdom. So here in Genesis, God is portrayed as the great king who's overseeing his realm as an architect. Because one of the other things is is that in the ancient world, the kings were these great builders. They were seen as architects and God is in fact an architect And they're the ones who exercise power by justice. At least that's the ideal. And they create order by delegating to other leaders. And that is also what God is doing. He's delegating to 
the sun, moon, and stars to govern the day and the night and to the humans to govern on the planet Earth. And interestingly enough, an image that you will see referred to by God later in the Bible is that he's a shepherd. And kings were shepherds. Regularly referred to as shepherds. And we could go on. In fact, interestingly enough, King David is himself referred to as a shepherd. Right? Well, his job was a shepherd and then becomes a king. And then we could go on and on uh, about this kingdom language. But I hope that you see that the Bible now from beginning to end is about the kingdom. And you could read Revelation to see that is also confirmed that the end is kingdom stuff. Now maybe there's one other thing you're kind of like, okay, seems pretty convincing, but I'm not totally convinced. Well, there's one other thing that's really important in kingdoms, and that's covenants. And so that's what I'd like to look at next. And we're only going to scratch the surface here because covenants, just like the kingdom of God, is huge and all throughout the Bible. But let's start with the definition of a covenant. Borrowing from a book titled The Sacred Bond, uh, which is a really great and short book if you want an introduction to covenants by uh, Brown and Keel. Uh, Here's the definition. A formal agreement that creates a relationship with legal aspects. And we could even shrink it down more concisely. Bonds created by oaths. That is a relationship that is created through vows. A relationship that wasn't there prior is established by making a verbal agreement and binding each other to it. Because this is actually how you think you've got a king, you've got the realm, and you've got the people. How do you organize it? How do you establish these relationships? Well, it's through covenants. That's how the kings would organize particularly their relationship with smaller rulers under them. So the covenants of the Bible are like the skeleton of the Bible. And the whole thing, the whole person, is the kingdom, so to speak. It's, it's, the covenants are the blueprints, the architectural blueprints of the building. Like the constitution. You could think of covenants as constitutional, the constitutional documents. And interestingly enough, with recent political happenings, there's been a lot of debates about what is constitutional, right? What, what, can, what can this part of the government do? What can this branch of the government do? Because maybe some things are not super clear or you're looking for how the principles interact. Uh, the constitution is the thing that governs, is essentially the law that everyone looks to for governance. And here's the thing that's interesting about the Bible. Most people, if you ask them what's your, you know, what religion you belong to, and if they say Christianity or Buddhism or whatever, then immediately everyone's like, oh, because of the prominence of Christianity, people assume that religions have books. Like the Bible's a religious book. But in the ancient world, religions actually didn't have books. But kingdoms did. They have covenants. And so the Bible is actually not a religious document. It's not a religious document. 
It's a kingdom document. And here's the thing. When you get to the ancient world, the ancient Near East in particular, it's a little bit like the Wild West. And if you're a tiny person or a tiny kingdom in a world filled with big kingdoms and bigger fish, you want to make covenants with those people for protection. And here are the components of a covenant. In the ancient world, this, is, this has nothing to do with the Bible. And what, well, it does have a lot to do with the Bible, but it's not like the Bible made this stuff up. You have what's called a historic preamble, an opening statement. Then with a historical prologue, usually giving some sort of story about the relationship between the two parties. Think, for example, in the Old Testament, God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the house of Egypt, the land of slavery. That's the story. Then you get what are called stipulations, the stuff you need to do. You will do this. I will do this. You will keep this. You won't do with this. And then you get sanctions, which are penalties. If you do this, and if you read some of these ancient documents, one of the things they'll do is like, they'll have like a, a visual aid to help. The, the great and mighty king would have like some sort of chopped up animal right there next to him when they make this document. And they'll say, you, little king, if you betray me, your head is going to be like this bull. You're going to be all mangled. That's you, if you betray me. I mean, it's almost like, it's, it's, it's like uh, mafia-like. Uh, and then one of the other things, after the other thing, so you have sanctions that are negative, but you have positives. If you do this, I will make sure that nobody touches you. I will protect you. Those are called blessings. These are called curses. And then you would have the invocation of the gods. The gods watch and keep witness between you and me. And then they would have things like, where are you going to keep this document so that you can know where it is and not forget? And then there's also the importance of having public readings. Now, here's the thing. If you read the book of Deuteronomy, all of this stuff that I have just laid out that you can find in all sorts of foreign covenants, Deuteronomy fits to a T. The book of Deuteronomy. Now, there's two types of covenants. They're called covenants of law or obligation, and then covenants of promise or covenants of grant. The covenants of law require you to do something. You must do this in order to achieve this benefit from me. Great king to little king. But then there are covenants of promise where the little king doesn't have to do anything. The great king simply bestows benefits upon said little king. Just giving gifts and blessings. So, Moses, when he brings the people out of Egypt, establishes a covenant between them and God. That's a, a huge portion of what 
the first five books of the Bible are doing is laying out this covenant. And the rest of the Bible, the rest of the Old Testament in particular, is going to track how Israel does. All the history books of the Bible are tracking how faithful Israel is to that original covenant that God has with the people at Israel. And when you read the prophets, the prophets are not religious fanatics. The prophets are the king's covenant lawyers who bring their lawsuits against God's people. If you don't do this, we're going to court. You've got to right your ways. You've got to stop oppressing the poor. You've got to stop worshiping idols. Otherwise, remember that bull, that's going to be you. Now, what about Genesis chapter 1 and 3? We don't actually have the word covenant at all mentioned. You can imagine, let's say in like 500, 600 years, you have a, a historian is looking at a pr practices from this old, you know, past nation, uh, uh, the United States. And, and the, this, the historian wants to know certain, you know, everyday practices. Like, what did they think about birthdays? They're, they're interested in, in studying birthdays. And they, I don't know how this is going to happen, but you imagine, like, they have YouTube archives. And they're watching all these YouTube clips of birthday parties. And they find a clip and they're like, hmm. They don't sing the song that they usually sing in these rituals. They don't sing happy birthday. But they watch the video and they notice there's cake and there's candles. There's the giving of presents. There's, there's little kids running around with making all sorts of noise, blowing these little horn things. There's confetti. And the historians are like, you know what? It looks like a birthday party, but they are not singing happy birthday. We don't hear them using any of this language. Like, we don't hear them saying, hey, it's a birthday party. Well, that's kind of what we have here in Genesis, chapter 1. 1 through 3, we don't have the word covenant mentioned, but we have the components of a covenant, okay? So, we have the language of cursing. And to make this clear, we're gonna, I'm going to read some things out of Deuteronomy, which we know is a covenant. It says it's a covenant. And we'll look at some of the language of Deuteronomy and we'll find it here in Genesis chapters 1 through 3. So, Deuteronomy, if you want to jump with me, if you have your Bibles, to Deuteronomy chapter 26. And what we're going to do is we're going to just hit some highlights from Deuteronomy 26 and 27 and 28. So Deuteronomy 26, verse 16. This day the Lord your God commands you to do these statutes and rules. You shall therefore be careful to do them with all your heart and all your soul, right? Here are the stipulations. These are the rules. You've got to keep them. You shall write them. This is verse 3 of chapter 27, if you jump down. You shall write these rules, write them all of these, um, write on them all the words of this law, 
When you cross over to enter the land that the Lord your God is giving to you, God is giving them a land, a land flowing with milk and honey. He's giving them an awesome place to live. As the Lord your God uh, of your fathers has promised you. Okay? Keep these rules because I'm giving you this land. And if you want to stay in the land, you got to keep them. Now, chapter 27, if you jump down to verses 15 through 17. Here's what happens if you don't keep the rules. Cursed be the man who makes a carved image or cast metal image, an abomination to the Lord, a thing made by the hands of a craftsman and sets it up in secret. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. So it's a public reading of the covenant. Now here's another one. Cursed be anyone who dishonors his father or his mother. People say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who moves his neighbor's landmark. Amen. And it goes on and on and on. Okay? So that's all the curses. That's the curse language. If you don't do this, here's what's going to happen to you. Now, jump to chapter 28, verses 1 through 6 of Deuteronomy. If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. If you obey the voice of the Lord your God, blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle, and the increase of your herds, and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. Just He's going to bless the living daylights out of them if they obey. There's no place they're going to go that's not going to be blessed. Inside or outside. All their work, blessed. Okay. Let's jump to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Genesis chapter 1, verses 28 through 29. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over everything that moves on the ground. And behold, God, and God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in it uh, and in its fruit. You shall have them for food. Notice the language of blessing. The exact same language that you have in Deuteronomy. Exact same. And also notice the fruitfulness of the land that God is giving to them. They're going to have, they're going to have food. He's going to give them food. Interestingly enough, actually, one of the ways that kings in the ancient world showed that you were dependent upon them and that you were one of their subjects was by feeding you. And then if you jump to Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, which is our passage this morning, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden. Right? He's, he's giving him a land. Giving him a land to work it and to keep it. 
It's part of what he should be doing. And the Lord God commanded the saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but, but, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat it, you will surely die. This is the warning and this is the curse. You eat it, you die. And in fact, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, after humanity has disobeyed, God pulls out the curse language. Cursed, the exact same words that you find in Deuteronomy. Cursed because you did this. And this covenant that we have here that is described in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is called the covenant of works. The covenant of works. God holds out before humanity two options. A tree of life. A tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which if they eat of it, they die. Two options. One which leads to life, one which leads to death. Blessing and curse. If they fulfill this covenant, God will grant them life. If they disobey it, they will surely die. This covenant is the most foundational covenant of the whole Bible. It's in fact written on every single human being in this room and on this planet since day one. It's be, it's, this is exactly why every single human being that you will ever meet is wired to think that they have to do what is right in order to be thought good. If you catch someone and they haven't done something wrong, they will immediately say, it was so-and-so or I, I'm, I'm innocent. We have the categories of innocent and guilty. They come from this covenant. It's wired into every single human. It's also the reason why it's wired even after Christ, which is a covenant that is different from this covenant, where we are justified by grace alone. Not because we do anything. It is not a covenant of works when it comes to our relationship with Christ. But we are still wired to think that I have to perform. I have to do good things so that God will love me, so that God will receive me, so that God will bless me. It's because we are wired for this first covenant. Adam and Eve are rulers made in the image of God. They're meant to keep this covenant, but they fail. And if you're still doubting that this is a covenant, listen to Hosea chapter 6, verse 7. God is denouncing Israel. He says, But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There, there they dealt faithlessly with me. Adam and Israel break the covenant. And here's the thing. What is being set out here in Genesis, in every way, as the Israelite people are standing in Sinai or as they're about to enter the promised land, when they read about Adam, they, they see that they are very, very much in parallel to Adam. The relationship of Israel to Adam is all over the place. And you, as you read through, just think of all the ways that Israel, as they are about to enter the promised land, and when they're in the promised land, are like Adam and Eve in the garden. 
Do this and you will live. Do this and you will die. Let's take a moment and look at Christ. Because not only is Israel paralleled to Adam, but Christ is also paralleled to Adam. And this is the gospel. Because if it were not for Christ, everybody in this room is doomed. Listen to this. Listen to how John, uh, sorry, Luke begins his gospel. He is given the story of Jesus' early life, and now he's coming in to introduce Christ's earthly ministry. This is Luke chapter 3, and I'm going to read just verses 23 and 24, then I'm going to jump to 37 and 38. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Eli, the son of Mathat, jumping now to 37 and 38, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalil, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Adam is a son of God, and Christ, a descendant of Adam, is also called a son of God. And you can find this also over the place. You read Romans 5, read 1 Corinthians 15. Christ and Adam, they go together. Adam and Christ are parallel because they are both seen as addressing the covenant of works. Adam fails the covenant of works. He does not do everything that God requires. Christ, on the other hand, does everything that God requires. Everything. Perfectly. And before you today stands only two options. Just like Adam had two options. One that led to life and one that led to death. This is true for you. But the options are slightly different. You are in Adam. As you were born, you are in Adam. You don't have a choice. But what is extended to you by God in Christ is that in Christ, what was required of Adam is fulfilled. And if you trust in Christ... You have fulfilled the covenant of works. Not in your works, but through Christ's. And that is good news. Because Christ's work is finished. It is complete. You have nothing to add to it. You have nothing to add to it. And we could look at all sorts of passages, but listen to Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. As Paul starts his letter to the Romans, he says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son. Regarding his son. The whole Bible is about the kingdom of God. It is structured by covenants, and thank our Heavenly Father, it is centered in Christ. 
everything in the Bible actually points to Christ as well. The parallel, it's interesting. Everything that you need, actually, every category that you're going to need for reading the rest of the Bible is in Genesis 1 through 3. It's just a matter of it getting expanded and explained in further detail. And so we see in Adam a foreshadowing of Jesus. And we could point out passage after passage where it shows that Jesus is the center of the Bible as the king of the kingdom who is in search of a lost people. And so what I would urge you today, whether you have believed in Christ or not, meditate on all the benefits that are in Christ. There is nothing that you can add to the finished work of Jesus. There's all sorts of ways that we fail day in and day out, especially when you think that the highest aspect of the law is to love without fail. We are required, one of the things that the covenant of works requires is that you love everyone all the time to your fullest capacity, God foremost. And it doesn't take a whole lot of thought, if you're honest with yourself, to realize that you don't love very well. But in Christ, God grants to us that we have fulfilled the, the law of love. And there are benefits that come from trusting in Christ, one being the Holy Spirit. But let me conclude with this quote from uh, an introduction to the Old Testament. The message of the Christian scriptures can be synthesized, that is pulled together, as God's kingdom through covenant for the glory of Christ. And that is our hope and our joy as Christians. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your Son. Because without your Son, we are lost. We would be pressed down by the requirements of the covenant of works. Heavenly Father, please, we pray. I pray for those who do not have faith in this room in Christ, who are striving in their own strength to love, to be righteous, to do what is just, who are counting on you saying that they've done well in their own power. Help us, Heavenly Father, I pray. I, I beg you, to help us all to place our faith completely in Jesus, not looking anywhere else. And I pray that for those whose consciences are troubled and disturbed this morning, may they confess and trust in Christ and I pray they would find peace in Jesus. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that you have provided a second option for us when we failed the first. We thank you for your graciousness to us and ask now that you would strengthen us to sing your praises in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.